After almost three years in the creation process, my book, The Spirit of Work, Timeless Wisdom, Current Realities, is making its publishing debut end of April 2022. By interweaving science, business, and sacred texts from the world's great spiritual traditions, The Spirit of Work offers a high-level but approachable way to view and structure work from individual, community, and institutional perspectives. I will be adding some solo podcasts to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast to give you a taste of what the book is like and to whet your appetite for more. When the April countdown to publication starts, there will be weekly live sessions, book readings, and prize draws you will definitely not want to miss. To get in on the VIP launch and get your advanced reader copy of Chapter 6, Why You Need Your Heart to Work, go to shiftworkplace.co slash bookvip. That's shiftworkplace.co slash bookvip. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. I am thrilled to introduce to you today Julien Lafaw, who is contacting us from Romania. I'm in Canada, he's in Romania, so we're nine hours difference away from each other. And he is a diversity and inclusion and resilience-focused business coach. I'm looking very much forward to digging into that and asking him more questions about it. Julien was working for 15 years in the nonprofit and private sectors managing learning and development and found his calling as a business coach. He now focuses on teaching businesses how sustainability and resilience have direct ties to diversity and inclusion. He has a master's in human resources and a certificate in International Coaching Federation, which qualifies him to be coaching with uh, businesses all around the world. So welcome, Julia, and uh, nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So that was just a little bit about you, and I know there's a whole lot more. So why don't you fill us in on a few more personal details about you? Yes, definitely. Well, I'm French. You don't necessarily hear it in the name, but uh, when you read it, you can definitely figure that out. Um, And as you said, I'm, I'm based in Romania. I've been here for nine years right now. I come from a quite diverse family, um, actually. So my, my parents divorced when I was quite young and my mom met my stepdad, who is from West Africa, from Senegal, especially. So I've always had that kind of very multicultural environment from very young age. I think I was about five or six years old at the time. I have a, an aunt as well, who is a part of the LGBTQ community. So there's always been that kind of mix at home. And I think it has followed me throughout my life afterwards because um, I moved to Amsterdam for a little while. I was um, living and working in London as well. When I was there, um, I lived, I I think I was doing the count the other day, but in my shared house, we had probably about 15 different nationalities throughout the years I was there. And so now I'm in Romania, I'm married to um, a Romanian lady and I have two kids who speak three languages as well. So as you can hear, I've got that multicultural has followed me and is still following me and now is part of my job. Wow, that's wonderful. And that's really where we're all going into a world of multiple cultures where we find friendship, work and life partners anywhere around the world, isn't it? Completely. And actually, interestingly enough, I actually met my wife in London at the time, um, even though she's Romanian, and we had no idea we would end up in Romania one day. And my job brought me here actually more than her. So as you said, yeah. Hmm. So how did your job bring you to Romania? 
When I was working in London, I, I was working in learning and development for a global organization. And at the time, so that's going back nine years ago, they decided to open an office here um, in Cluj-Napoca. That's the heart of Transylvania. And they thought about me because I think one thing that was very interesting is that the company had a very strong company culture. And me being part of the wider HR team, I knew that culture quite well. I had been in the company for a while. And what they really wanted to do is to bring someone to Romania who understands the culture of the company, understands the British culture as well, and kind of bridge between all these different cultures to make sure that we bring people in and we train people in a way where we embrace the diversity, but at the same time, we create a place where people feel like they really belong. Mm -hmm. um, so they decided to ask me. Uh, I have actually a funny story with that, where my CEO at the time looked at me and said, oh, it's great opportunity for you and your wife is going to love it. She's going to go back home to her family. And then when I called her, she said, but I don't want to go back to Romania. <laughs> uh, because obviously she had made a choice to come to London for certain reasons. And it was not the plan to go back yet, at least. But she was on maternity leave at the time. My daughter was quite young. So we decided, okay, let's do it. It was supposed to be six to nine months and we're going to 10 years now. Uh, we're still here. Well, that's an interesting turnaround, how she didn't want to be mm -hmm. in Romania. She's from there. And then you, your whole family went back there and now you're still there after nine years. Yes, yes. because of me. <laughs> you must also feel that you belong there. In Romania, definitely now. I think one of the things I love about the country is that people are very welcoming. They love to share about their food, their culture, what they're doing, especially with internationals, because I think for a long time, there was very little access to the outside world. And so when the doors opened, I think that multiculturality that came through I think it was very important for people. And yeah, I, I do feel like belong. I've learned quite a bit of the language now. I'm not completely fluent. My neighbor forces me because he doesn't speak English. We've got some funny conversations. But yeah, it's a place that I would call home for now, definitely. Mm. Mm, that's great. Interesting that you would say call home for now because you probably feel ho at home in many places. Yes, exactly. I think for me, I, often people ask me or have asked me in the past, where is home? And expecting maybe that um, France would still be home. And I think for me, home is, is where I am because I kind of make it home. And I've learned through the years as well to adapt to all these different cultures more and more. And yeah, and for me, home is where my family is, where the people I enjoy being with are, I think, Pretty much what you said before, it's like, it's about belonging. It's home is where I feel like I belong. And you never know, maybe in a few years, I will decide I'll move somewhere else and I'll create another home somewhere else. Because you know how to create the environment for belonging for yourself and others. So it's not threatening to you to think that you could be in a different place. People who've never been through that before and don't have any tools to create a space of belonging for themselves and for others, they they would probably find that a more fearful venture than you would. Oh, definitely. And and I remember actually one of the very first times I left France, that was when I moved to Amsterdam, actually. And even though you could think that the cultures are not very different because it's, we're still talking about Europe, not far from each other. We're really talking about a few hundred kilometers away. It was the first time I was on my own in a place where it was different 
And um, yeah, and there were moments that were not easy. I think, mm. uh, and it's interesting we because we're, we're we'll probably talk a little bit more about resilience as well later. But I don't think I had that resilience to be able to say, yeah, I I can stay here. I can create that environment, as you said, and it was quite difficult at times. So when the cultures are even further apart from each other, for sure, I'm I wouldn't be surprised that for some people it, it would be a difficult journey at the beginning. I think it's difficult for everybody. It's when you decide that you're going to learn from it and move forward. And also when you just embrace the fact that you're in that situation and that it's not easy instead of resisting it, it it certainly makes it easier, but it's never a simple journey. And it's through that difficulty that you gain intercultural skills. You don't gain them from just reading about them in a book. You have to live the pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, completely. So let me ask you a few questions about your childhood. So can you recall a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe made you into that resilient person that you are today? Yes, definitely. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of them, but um, some of the ones that I remember are one question I always ask myself, and it it took me years actually to understand and to have that self-awareness is I always saw myself as a very shy and timid child. Um, I'm, I'm the first one of, I have three brothers and a sister, but my oldest brother uh, is actually nine years younger than me. So I really am a, a single child for a long time. And one of the things that always bothered me is that I, I struggled to find whether I was really shy or whether I was a very kind of extrovert type child because everybody was telling me, okay, you're quite extrovert. You need the people and so on. And that somehow always bothered me. And I think it made me um, more resilient because what happened from there is I managed to kind of balance between different, I want to say personalities. It sounds a little bit like I have dual personality, but uh, more in the sense of I, I was able to adapt to other people more easily. And I I think that's one of the things that is very important as part of my own resilience, that adaptation and that flexibility that I've gained in my childhood. Another one, obviously, is all the experiences I've had with my stepfather's family. So bringing that culture from Senegal that was hugely different, um, even though there were some similarities. I mean, my stepfather comes from a Catholic family, for example. So it has very close links with probably a lot of people in France and what I would have seen at the time around me. But at the same time, some very, very strong differences when it comes to, I don't know, simple things like the relationship to the family and to the elderly or uh, time. Time was always a, a funny one. And that's another thing as well, I think, that has built on my on my resilience, that ability to kind of create maybe, I would say, going to new challenges more easily, being more, have more tenacity when it comes to um, taking risk and, and having things happening to me. Uh, and then maybe even like the, the um, overall control of my life, um, probably has helped a lot. So these probably some of the some of the the memories that can really relate to the resilience there. What do you mean by overall control of your life? 
So for me, uh, one, one of the elements of, um, that is important in resilience is that when we look at the things around us, we want to feel like we're in control of our life and we're in control of the circumstances, but we can't always be. And we can only be in control of some of those things. And I think that's what I mean by the control of your life is being able to say, yeah, these are the things that I can control. These are the things that I cannot control. And that's okay. And if I cannot control them, then I will just let them go, deal with them later, maybe. And the ones that I am in control, that's where I can really do something. I can learn from it. I can grow from it. I can develop new skills, maybe. It's a really important concept in resilience, what you just described, which is that idea that there's a margin of control no matter where you are. It may be very tiny. Mm -hmm. It may be big, or it may be just around the corner from where you're at, but that margin of control can do a lot to make you feel more secure. I was a little bit late for our interview today because I was stuck in a snowstorm. And um, mm -hmm. I'm usually driving to my office on my own, but this time I was with my husband and we have very different driving styles. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to be a lot faster. He tends to be a lot slower. <laughs> he is more risk averse. I'm more adventure embracing. But at the same time, uh, it was a snowstorm. And no matter what you do and no matter what your style is, there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to sit it through till you get to your destination because everything is blocked. And all that time I was thinking how irritated I was that I hadn't chosen to drive myself and, and how I would have been there faster had I been on my own. And I'm thinking, wait, I have no control over any of this stuff. What am I thinking? I only have one control. That's to take a deep breath and practice patience. That's all I have. <laughs> I can accept the fact that we're in the middle of a weather incident take a breath and practice patience. That's my control. That's my margin of control. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I thought that the traffic opened up and there was a break in the snow and the people that were in accidents were behind us. And so we were able to move in a little faster and get there in just a, a few minutes later. But it's kind of interesting how once you accept where you're at, think, well, what do I have control over? And then just figure how you can do that, how many opportunities provide themselves because you're not resisting anymore, you know? Have you had that mm -hmm. experience? hundred uh, percent. And I think one of, one of the things that is interesting in, in the example you gave as well is the fact that if you decide to not let go of what you can and cannot control, quite often you go into these emotions that are very depleting and take a lot of your energy. And I think it's very counterproductive for you in anything you want to achieve, but as well to become a more resilient individual. And yeah, a good example I have is and it, that goes back to um to my stepfather and his family actually is that at the very beginning after my mom had met him and I got to know him a bit better we were invited for lunch on a sunday and so we were invited at his parents place around 1 p.m., which sounds like a normal time, like good enough time to have lunch on a Sunday. You can sleep a little bit longer in the morning and then you go and have lunch. When we got there, his mom was actually just starting to cook and we didn't eat until four o'clock in the afternoon. So you can imagine my mom and I being very French. In France, we have that kind of 15 minute politeness where you can be late a bit by 15 minutes, but then after that, you go back into the time you should be in. Um, no, we had like three hours delay at that time. So we were starving. And the second time we got invited, same, we thought, okay, maybe the first time was a mistake. And it was very frustrating because we were really, really hungry. But the second time was exactly the same. So we realized it's part of the culture, actually, when, at least in the Senegalese culture, when you say 1 p.m., first of all, it doesn't mean that you have to show up at 1 p.m. No one will get offended if you don't. Two, 
it also means that we're definitely not going to eat at 1 p.m. because some other people may be expected and so on. So the only control we had at that time is to say, well, okay, if we don't want to be hungry, what do we do? So usually both my mom and I, just before we would leave the house, would just have a little snack so we can hold on until the lunch is served. And that's the control we had, because ultimately, the last thing we could do is to change the whole family. It was so deep into their culture. It was not our role to make any changes in that. And actually, it would have been even inappropriate probably for us to expect them to change. We were coming into their culture. It was for us to adapt and for us to be flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. I have lots of stories like that, too. Various cultures have different time windows some it's an hour to an hour and a half. Sometimes it's three and four, and some it can be any time within forty-eight hours. <laughs> so you <laughs> <True>. <laughs> and others get very upset if you're not there fifteen minutes early. And some being right on the mark is a matter of respect. And if you're two minutes late, you better be calling and explaining why. So it's but really <laughs> time varies so much between oh, cultures, yes. and it can be a real source of frustration to until you figure out that you don't really have any control over it. So you just have to understand it and find a way to adapt, mm-hmm. right? I started asking this event that's on in this community. Usually it was an African community, but it could have been a Middle Eastern community too. I'd say this event, you know, is this like Canadian time or is this like Sierra Leone time? And they'll go, oh, it's going to be Sierra Leone time. I'm, okay, so I should arrive four hours after the start date. And yep, yep, that's when you should arrive. Usually arriving four hours late was just about when things were starting to get moving. So some people would arrive early and they'd spend a lot of time talking to each other and stuff, but it was mostly, mostly they didn't. And then it went the other way around. I thought, oh, well, they're going to be late anyway, so I'm not going to worry about being on time. And then everybody's waiting for me and they're going, oh, you know, you're late. I thought this was Canadian time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the risk indeed that you end up going on the, in the other direction as well. I have a question. I'm really curious about the connection between Senegal and France because I've also watched a lot of movies where there's that interaction between the Senegalese and the French. What's the connection? What's the deal? <laughs> uh, well, I think it's uh, the in not just Senegal, but uh, a huge part of West Africa was colonized by France. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think that connection started. So um, even though the French is not the only national languages in Senegal, it's it's one of the most important ones, definitely in, in business relationships. Um, and then there is Wolof as well, which is probably the, the most spoken one, uh, which is originally from Senegal and and from the region. But yeah, I think that's the connection really, which has created its problems as well, I think, because there is some resentment, especially these days, I think. There are movements that are coming up where obviously they they want to be even more independent because I think even though um, it's a free country for, I don't know, maybe about 60 something years and independent, there is still a very strong link between France and France has still a very strong impact, obviously, on Senegal as well. And because Senegal was colonized by the French, that would be why there are so many Senegalese in France. Yes, as well. Are there many French in Senegal or is it more of a one-way thing? Yeah, there are quite a few French people in Senegal as well. But obviously, they're often there for work purposes or they retire there as well, actually. It's interesting. I would like to investigate that more when I get the chance. Uh, It's the French movies (laughs) that we're watching. We're just seeing so many Senegalese characters popping up. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. 
So from the groups that you were born into, uh, which would you say has most influenced your sense of culture and self and sense of leadership right now? And how? It's a very good question. I think definitely for me, it would be with my stepfather because there are other groups that were around me and other communities. Like I mentioned about my aunt being part of the LGBTQ community. I have another aunt as well. It was... Um, um, who had kind of mental health issues. So there are a few different things that were there, but I don't think any of the others were really as obvious to me, at least at the time. I think I've only realized them later. But the one with my stepfather, I think has brought a lot of different things. First of all, I think it has expanded my knowledge, which I think for me is one of the basis of the dimensions around kind of diversity and inclusion and belonging is that that awareness and that knowledge is there um, at, at the base. But also, I think it has taught me how to create better connections because I was more open, more inquisitive probably. And then from that, it led as well to be a better communicator because obviously uh, being able to understand how another culture works means that there are some things you can and cannot say. And when you're saying it, you're being careful or being conscious, at least, if not careful, conscious of how the other person can perceive it, because I think it's, it is all about perceptions at the end of the day. And in terms of leadership, I think it has had a huge impact on me because I apply that every day. And even if we go further than the leadership being a coach, um, this is something, again, that I use at all times that, how would I phrase it, like um, coming in front of someone and seeing the hero in them and the bigger person and the person as a whole and just being curious and open and be there to listen to them. Mm -hmm. So how old were you when your, your mother remarried? I was, uh, oh, so well, so when she met my stepfather, I was about six years old, I think, mm -hmm. if I remember well. So it was very six. early in your childhood. It was indeed, yeah. yes. So it was really a significant impact. And what about the French culture? What would you say has impacted you from being French or from being Catholic or anything else that was surrounding you at the time? So the French culture, interestingly, I have a huge dilemma at the moment on, on that topic because so I was raised in a family that was not religious at all. My parents were Christians. I wasn't. Some members of my family would go to church. A lot of them would not necessarily. Um, so there was really that openness of I could choose whenever I want. My brothers, for example, chose um, when they were about maybe 10 or 11 years old. And I decided I didn't want to be baptized, for example. But as part of the French culture, there is one element I think that has impacted me a lot. And that's element of, um, I think in English it's called laicity as well, mm -hmm. where it starts from the church and the state being separated, but as well, how do you bring a very our religious environment, especially when it comes to public institutions? And what it has brought to me actually is those questions. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, entirely sure, actually, I, I have the answers for myself on um, well, how do you view religion and how do you create that balance uh, or that harmony between people wanting to actually show their religious appartenance um, and belonging and the fact that, well, we should not really do that in a like country, 
as per the law would say, I, I, I should say. Um, so I'm very torn actually between these two. But what it has brought me at the same time is being able to, again, look out for those differences in my surroundings. Because even though France is a very Catholic country, I was raised in an environment and just outside of Paris where I don't think Catholics were the majority. I think we really had a, a mix of people around us from atheist to Muslim to Jewish to anything you could um, you could think of was probably in my classrooms from very young age. So I think this is probably another one from the French culture where it has brought also that element of diversity for me that has made me kind of question a little bit about my own culture and including the, the French culture as to, are we actually really doing the right things? Is it the right way to think about it? Should we think about it in a different way? And again, I think it has, for me, brought that into later on in my life. How do I question myself all the time as well? And how do I make sure that I don't keep that status quo? Yeah, I would say um, most people that I meet from France consider themselves to be part of a secularist culture. And yet they are strongly influenced by the history of France being very much mm -hmm. associated with the Catholic Church. And yes. many people associate religion with being Catholic or not. And then when other religions became more prominent in France, it, it was such a dilemma. Oh, My yeah. husband's family is all from France, so this is why I can speak to it a little bit. It's such a dilemma for people because they were not expecting it to rear its head in the way that it did. And it's all about people not understanding the role of religion, which is to promote love and harmony, mm -hmm. and also not understanding that religion is actually just all different facets of the same paths going up to the top of the mountain. You know, if we start thinking that way, we're less likely to be confused about what's going on. But as long as we think we have to fight against it or stake our claim or some people are right and others are wrong, it, it makes for a very conflictual environment, very hard to create an openness to others. But I think you probably to a large extent resolved that because you've lived in other countries and because you were in a multicultural family and you had to hold this space and still preserve the relationship. I don't know True. if I'm making sense. So, mm -hmm. so, you, so you're yes. holding you're holding a space that re, that requires care and attention to the relationships. And that becomes the most important part. And if we, I think as a human race, if we saw religion as being indicators for how to care and preserve relationships rather than rules that are markers of territory and belonging to one group and excluding from another, mm -hmm. probably make a lot more progress. Totally. And it's not easy because I still make mistakes myself. I mean, I have a great story with a friend that used to live here in Cluj as well. And when I met her, she spoke French. So we got along very quickly. And the first thing I did is as a true French person, I went forward to her and I gave her a kiss like we do amongst friends in France. Mm -hmm. And she's originally from Morocco. So she's Muslim. And it took her two years to tell me, actually, Julian, I actually don't really want that because... <laughs> It's not appropriate. And Such I was like, oh, for you, 
I was like, poor you. I cannot believe one. I just stepped in it without even thinking about it. It's a good example for me of you cannot rest and assume suddenly. It's very easy to assume that other people will be okay with something because obviously she has a very strong link to France. So for me, I was like, it's all fine. And then at the same time, there is an element here that I, when I reflect back, is the fact that it takes a lot of courage for the person on the other side as well to say, well, either it's inappropriate or you should not do it like this, or it makes me feel uncomfortable, whatever the message is. And again, it's important to ask those questions and to inquire first. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful example of how we continuously grow in our ability to respond to people. But sometimes people think, well, when you're always conscious of culture, then that means you're you're frozen and you do nothing. But I think it's the opposite. I think you're more willing to invest in the relationship. And if Mm -hmm. you make a mistake, it can be fixed. And if it can't be fixed, it's part of the learning process. You know, then you you Mm -hmm. think, okay, well, then that's something I can learn and go forward with. I'm sure there were lots of things to think about. So your French, um, you both have this French thing in common, but at the same time, there is gender related to her Muslim background and Mm -hmm. what would be appropriate for her a Muslim not married to the person relationship and what would have come into play, but it may not have been obvious because the first marker was the nationality, right? And the language, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I think this is something for any of us who are really concerned about being better world citizens and having better relationships, we're willing to go in and invest in making those relationship mistakes because we know we can find a way through it. But Mm -hmm. for those who aren't really invested They're so concerned with the political correctness of what they're doing that they never take a step into the water, you know? Yeah. And it is about being able to say, effectively, I'm not perfect and I will make mistakes and be able to recognize them and apologize when it's required. Yeah. And to know who you can do that with, because some people Mm -hmm. you can't and some people you can. So let's go into that next question, because everything you say makes me think of something else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you chose to belong to groups as as an adult, right? You chose to belong to human resources, to become an internationally certified coach, um, the diversity inclusion. You probably chose other things too, you know, hobbies and then also your wife's Romanian culture. What of those cultures, what stands out for you right now when you think about what's influencing you? I think what would stand up really strongly for me is on, on the coaching side, because that's probably the community where I have learned the most from in the last few years. And that has helped me as well grow as a person, um, create that self-awareness. Interestingly enough, when I started my coach training, I thought I had quite a lot of self-awareness about myself. And I think I did maybe a little bit more than other people that didn't have the chance to be in such a diverse environment that I have had, but actually I was missing so much. And this journey of becoming a coach, it was actually really a journey of self-discovery. It was a journey of looking in the mirror and seeing what are the things that I should do differently? What are the things that I should embrace and use as strength to be able to move forward as well. So I think that was probably one of the communities that has made the biggest difference because now as well, aside from having done my own journey, I'm able to share that journey with other people who've been through maybe slightly similar um, experiences and I don't know, share tips and bounce back ideas. And community for me is a very, very strong 
group that I always rely on. Mm -hmm. Professional communities can be really important as adults to how you develop, especially when you're relying on them and you actually have many interactions with them. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which is about uh, personality and temperament. So temperament being what you're born with. And you mentioned already that mm -hmm. you were very shy, but yet you were social. Maybe you were a social introvert. I have a grandson who's a social introvert. Mm -hmm. He's definitely shy, but he really loves to be around people. <laughs> um, yeah, so you were shy, but then you learned other ways of communicating and you added other pieces on to the way that you interact with people. So probably those have become part of your personality at this point, right? So what would you say you were born with and what have you evolved into? This is actually a very interesting question because I don't think I've ever asked myself what I was born with, but maybe I think, and it's interesting, actually, you'll see, I would say probably the things I was born with are probably the kind of very analytical and logical kind of mind where I always wanted to kind of make sense of the world and yeah. Being able to kind of always question and see the right from the wrong and so on. And I think one of the other personalities that has come through later on, and I don't know if it's kind of a behavior or a personality that I've learned or if it was there and kind of never came to the surface, is that kind of creative and innovative side of me. I love coming up with new solutions, new ideas. And sometimes, interestingly enough, these two personalities really clash because I go into the very future-looking What are the options? What are all the things I can do? Um, taking risk. And then I have this other side of my personality that kind of pulls me back and goes, well, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Why would you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's I just feel I need to do it. So uh, that's these are probably the two personal the two parts of my personality that I use the most, um, and sometimes drive the people around me crazy a bit because I can easily switch from one to another and have a creative solution, and then a few sentences later just go and say, "Well, actually, that doesn't make sense." Well, having an analytical approach to things is very much reinforced in the French school system. And True. creativity is not. However, in HR and having to work with people in diversity and inclusion, definitely you'd have to be creative. So yes. uh, you probably learn to call on whatever pieces you need. And I suspect rather than saying you're just going from one extreme to the other, that you're probably bringing both pieces to a more integrated solution in the long run. It's very possible indeed. Mm -hmm. yep. I'm just sort of reflecting on what you said. So can you recall a time, surely there are many in your life when you became aware that your cultural understanding of a situation was in fact specific to your own experience, your own culture, your own cultural window, and not just normal. You can't see me, but the moment you said that I had a huge smile on my face. So I can't remember where I was flying, but I was flying with the German airline Lufthansa. And, you know, like in, in any of these airlines, they have these magazines that you can read. And in this magazine at the end, they have always an article, which is what do you have in your suitcase? And what they do is they interview famous people who are traveling with them and they ask them, what are you carrying in your suitcase? And they were interviewing a German movie director who was going to the Cannes Festival in south of France. And And one of the things that he had in his suitcase was bread. And the reason why he had bread is because there are no good bakeries in France. <laughs> And you, you have no idea at that point 
I could feel my blood boiling. <laughs> and I was like, my, I think the first thing that came to my mind is I need a German person to hit right now, who, with, uh, whichever, because this guy is not in the plane with me, so I can't be him. And I was like, how can you say that? Yeah, the home and of the baguette. <laughs> yes, it made me think actually after reflecting on it afterwards, it made me think actually how proud we are of some of these things and food being obviously one of the critical ones, I should say, but even things like fashion or the arts or things like that and how offended we can become when someone disagrees with us. So yeah, I and and this still comes back once in a while, especially in Romania, where we have very strong differences in some of these things and some of these beliefs and so on. And then the Frenchman comes out. And as one of my ex-colleagues used to say, you don't want to get the Frenchman angry. Well, I mean, two ways that you can certainly make somebody's blood boilers to insult their national foods, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the ones that are dear to their hearts. And the other one is to say something about their mother, right? Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so you know you have to yeah that's you got to watch what you say when it comes to food because food is very personal and people have really strong feelings of identification around food don't they yes definitely maybe the french I, more than any other country even <laughs> i think so i think we, we might be sharing it maybe with the italians mm. um, who are very strong about their food as well maybe the spanish but yeah i think we're probably somewhere there at the top of the list that's a great example So we're reaching at the end of the interview, and I wanted to ask you about what tips you might give to someone who was going to work with you. Like, so someone who's going to come to you as a coaching client or maybe an organization that wants to hire you to do coaching for a number of different employees or their clients. What would bring out the best in Julianne Effort? Um, what kinds of things really make you feel that you have a climate in which you can truly blossom and be yourself when you're at work? I think, and that's probably something I always share with probably every single client I work with, and it's being open. And when I say being open, it's not just being open to receiving, but it's being open as well to kind of sharing and somehow disagreeing as well. I think one of the things I need in a relationship with a client when I'm working with them is that trust and that safety in the environment. And so it's being able to say, I don't want to go there if it's a topic that maybe is a little bit sensitive and it's okay. But at the same time, it's also kind of pushing yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone and telling yourself, I know I don't really want to go there, but it would be good if I could take at least one step forward because ultimately... That's what is going to enable me to grow as an individual. And I think as a coach, as well as an individual, that's definitely something I need personally as well, because from there, we can really truly create those connections. We can truly have that communication that is flowing and that helps us both or both sides to really move forward. And Ultimately, a little bit like my friend I was mentioning about before that took two years to tell me I did something wrong or at least inappropriate for her. We're creating an environment where suddenly that trust is stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. Openness, interest in the relationship to develop trust and safety, mm -hmm. and then being willing to take a step forward out of your comfort zone towards the other person. Did I get that right? Yes. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners? 
Well, I think, and it's something we didn't necessarily touch on directly, but one of the of the the works I do at the moment, uh, which I find fascinating, is that relationship and that correlation between diversity and inclusion and resilience. Oh yeah, and please, I think please thing, speak to that. The, the thing that I want to say is that we forget sometimes that there are some very very simple things that we can do to become more resilient. And we all need that. We go and start our days. I mean, you had a beautiful example with the snowstorm. You start your day always maybe on the right foot, full of good intentions, having a good day, feeling energized. But things happen to us during that day uh, from the kids not wanting to dress up in the morning to that snowstorm that shows up to whatever something may happen at work. And the beauty with that correlation between diversity and inclusion and resilience is there are so many little things that you can actually do that will help you become more resilient by simply connecting better with others and by simply learning about other cultures or differences that other people may have. And we can do it everywhere. It's just about being open and curious about the things around us and trying to understand a little bit why are we different to the person that's sitting next to us in the subway or in the plane or who is driving in the next lane um, on our way to work or in the queue at Starbucks in the morning. It's so easy, but actually it has such a huge impact on how we can feel and how we can bounce back from these challenges in the long term. Can you define resiliency and then define inclusion according to the way you're working with people? Yes, of course. I'll start with resilience. Resilience for me is, and actually I use the word resilience quite a lot, but in the work I do, I actually talk more even about mental toughness, which I would say is probably kind of the the next level with extra layers to resilience. Um, but I know resilience is a word that is maybe a little bit more common in use these days. So that's why I still use it quite a lot. But for me, there is three elements. There is the kind of the before, the during and the after. And with resilience is, and working on resilience is the, that ability to prepare for, to deal with and to bounce back from challenges, stressors, anything that may happen to us. So mm-hmm. it's these three elements. So really to to prepare for to deal with and to bounce back from challenges. So that would be the the definition for me on resilience. And inclusivity, I think it's actually a very difficult one to define because there is more than just inclusivity. There is the diversity, there's the equity, and there is the belonging as well. If we were looking just at maybe inclusivity and belonging, I would say that inclusivity is that ability to recognize others' differences, while the belonging is being able to bring those differences and create an environment where everybody feels that they are somehow the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you want to recognize and appreciate difference and be curious to learn more. And at the same time, you want to look for what you have in common to build bridges of friendship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think there's a tie between inclusion and resilience in that you can't be resilient if you don't feel you have anyone on your side and you don't belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the studies of people that have been in horrific situations and still were resilient when everybody else caved or fell apart or didn't survive, mm-hmm. they had somebody somehow that was a relationship that sustained them. 
And if I want to practice inclusion, it's about me wanting to have have relationships with others. So there is that link. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I'm just thinking about it now. But that resilience requires having a sense that somebody cares about you and that you belong somewhere. And inclusion involves the willingness to find out about, you know, the difficult things and like what 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 brings sore to people not want to do that you don't want to bring sore to people to, and you want to bring them joy instead so I think they are in my mind at least they're related I'm just thinking about this as something that you brought up because I hadn't really thought about the connections before you think I'm on the right track Definitely. And it's interestingly enough, if you look actually at the activists of this world, they will probably all be very, very resilient. And I think they're good examples of how that correlation really shows the impact that one has on the other and vice versa, I think, actually, I think it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you have given us much food for thought. And I appreciate very much the opportunity to have this interview and to bring your life and your thoughts and your wonderful skills to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure and I truly enjoyed the conversation. So thank you very much for having me. Julien Lefort is a French business coach with a Senegalese stepfather and a Romanian wife, and he knows how to fit in anywhere in the world. After working in the nonprofit and private sectors managing learning and development, he now focuses on how businesses increase sustainability and resilience as they solidify their ties to diversity and inclusion. It was a pleasure to interview Julien and to hear his fascinating story. See the show notes for more information on how to connect with him and his work. As always, I love it if you can share our podcast with somebody who you think would benefit from a specific episode. The more we share, the more our listenership increases which is our goal because we want more and more people to hear the wonderful, diverse voices on the Culture Leadership Connections podcast. Thank you so much for listening and may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. Hey, podcast listeners, help us reach our goal of a thousand downloads per episode by going to followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. That's followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. If you type that into your browser and you use the and sign, not the word and culture and leadership, it will automatically adjust to your phone and then you can follow and rate. So followthepodcast.com slash culture and leadership. Thanks in advance for following and for reviewing.